our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Veritas, because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I think it's time to open the books on the question of government investigations of UFOs. Uh, we ought to do it really because it's right. We ought to do it because the American people, quite frankly, can handle the truth. And we ought to do it because it's the law. Be skeptical. Do be as skeptical as you want, but by all, don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of the Veritas Show, where you listen because you don't want to believe, you listen because you want to know. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for tuning in once again. And if you are new to the show, make yourself at home. Today, aside from a few quick announcements, we'll go directly to our special guest, Grant Cameron, UFOs and Presidents. To get in touch with me, very simple. Send an email to mel, that's M-E-L, at veritasshow.com. Keep your emails coming. I really appreciate them. And welcome to all of you who are joining the Facebook page. And remember, the Veritas Show contest is still going until March 31st. And the Veritas Show continues to spread, now through the traditional radio waves, a radio station called K-Rocks Radio 1 and Zero Point Radio, put us on the air as a test, and we are told they experienced a huge listener increase, resulting in that station now playing our show. In addition, we are now syndicated by the Black Vault Radio Network. We will now begin to explore a few more select radio stations. This is history for the Veritas Show. Next week's special guest is Richard Dolan, UFOs and the National Security State, and the following week, Robert Morningsky. The Terra Papers Revisited. And by the way, this is an exclusive interview after almost a decade of silence from Robert Morningsky. I have a compliment for all of you who listen. I have realized that you are the brightest minds I know. Judging by the emails I get and now by the interactions I'm having with some of you on the forum, I hope to interact with more of you. To join the forum, it's very easy. Just head to our homepage, VeritasShow.com, and click on Forum. Incidentally, you are really 
raising the bar for me, and it's an honor and a true privilege to reach such an intellectual audience, and I want you to know that I'm working very hard to continue earning your loyalty. And without further ado, let's go right to our special guest, Grant Cameron. If there's anyone who has studied the topic of precedents and UFOs, there is no one, and I mean no one, like Grant Cameron. And it's a privilege for the Veritas show to have him on tonight. Here's a quick introduction from a few presidents. In a few short years, UFOs had reached the highest office in the land. But, oh yes, we discussed it at every conference that we had with the military. There's always things like that going on. Uh, flying saucers and we've had other things, you know, if I'm not mistaken. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizen can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweighed the dangers which are cited to justify it. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? If the United States Air Force did recover alien bodies, they didn't tell me about it either. And I want to know. I want to know. I want to know. That's good. How are you? Since the statement made by George Bush last July, there's been a vicious rumor circulating in the UFO community that you've been read into the UFO program. So my question to you is, in any of your government jobs, have you ever been briefed on the subject of UFOs? And if you have, when was it and what were you told? Well, if I had been briefed on that, I'm sure it was probably classified and I couldn't talk about it. And it stunned me. It was significant because, first of all, he basically stated it would probably be classified and stated I wouldn't be talking about it, which means it's, it, it, they're going to continue to keep it secret. And he basically acknowledged that, yes, he's in the loop, and yes, there is something to this. It's secret and it's important. Grant Cameron became involved in ufology in 1975 with personal sightings of an object which locally became known as Charlie Red Star. The sightings occurred in Carmen, Manitoba, Canada. In the past few years, Cameron has turned his research interest to the involvement and actions of the President of the United States in the UFO problem. 
He has made over 20 trips to the National Archives and most of the various presidential archives looking for presidential UFO material. One highlight of his presidential UFO research was the chance to question Vice President Dick Cheney on his knowledge of the UFO subject. Another highlight of the presidential UFO research was the Freedom of Information Act request to the White House Office of Science and Technology, which yielded 1,000 pages of UFO documents from the Clinton administration. Many of these findings have been written up on his website, presidentialufo.com. At present, Cameron is awaiting almost 100 Freedom of Information Act requests from the Clinton Presidential Library in Little Rock, Arkansas, related to the UFO-related actions and policies inside the two presidential terms of Bill Clinton. And the Veritas Show is proud to have with us directly from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, the Authority on Presidential Research and UFOs, Grant Cameron. Hello, Grant, and welcome to the Veritas Show. How are you? Very good. Thank you, Mel. I appreciate your interest, and uh, thanks for giving me the time to talk. It's our pleasure. This interview couldn't be more timely, Grant, especially with the new developments that are unfolding about the President Eisenhower and his alleged meeting with extraterrestrials. But before we talk about the presidential world of UFOs, would you like to give a brief history of your educational and work background growing up in Canada and your exciting introduction to UFOs in the 70s, which was fortunate to us since you have become a luminary in the UFO research field. Okay, my background is basically I grew up here in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. I've lived here my whole life. It is notorious as being the coldest major city in the world. And uh, I was uh, going to university, I was doing a degree in political studies when I got involved with UFOs, never did finish my degree. Uh, I had a sighting in May of 1975 and really had no interest in UFOs before that, had some interest in uh, life after death phenomena, stuff like that. But UFOs, I can't ever remember having even thought about it. And what happened was there was a sighting of uh, a flap of sightings that occurred at Carmen, Manitoba, which is about 25 miles north of the U.S.-Canadian border and about 30 miles southwest of uh, the big city where I live in. And uh, this sighting st- these things, sightings started in about February of 1975. It went on uh, February, March, April. It was in the newspapers. There was lots of uh, stuff on the radio about it. And uh, we as young uh uh, kids used to drive around the city just doing nothing, just driving around. And I said, well, to my friends, let's go out to this town and see what everybody's looking at instead of driving around the city. And uh, we didn't actually make it out there till May. That uh, What had happened was a uh, local TV station had actually gotten a film of this thing jumping off the ground. They had surrounded the thing on the ground and it had jumped off the ground and they had managed to catch this thing on film as it jumped off the ground. So that, that really sort of hit the headlines. And then we went out and this was shortly a couple days after that. And the first night I was out there, we drove around for about an hour and really didn't see anything. I couldn't figure out what people were looking at. We saw Venus setting. We saw, you know, stars. And we went, well, you know, if this is what everybody's looking at, it's not very impressive. And we were just going into the town for the last time. We'd been driving for about an hour. My friend was driving. And uh, he said, well, we'll go back into town one more time. And this is the town of Carmen. 
were coming in from the east into the town. And uh, it, and I always tell people when I lecture and when I talk about UFOs, there's 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 believing in UFOs, there's disbelieving in UFOs, and then there's knowing. And this thing came in front of the car. It was, I don't know, maybe half a mile, a mile down the road, very, very low, right across the road, uh, bobbing up and down, um, not flying in a straight line, just moving up and down, uh, glowing, pulsing, and it was not a thing where everybody said, well, like we had for the first hour, is that what people are looking at? Is that what people are? As soon as we saw it, everybody said the same thing. There it is. Everybody knew instinctively this is what everybody was talking about. And um, I was totally blown away. I remember the the car we were driving, and the, it was very low, and it was going in behind a set of school buses that they had parked outside the town. And uh, I, it was getting in behind the school buses. You really couldn't see it. It was so low on the ground. And I can still remember getting out of the car. The car was still moving as we were coming to a stop on the highway. And I was trying to run to get past these school buses so I could watch this uh, thing fly off into the distance. And it basically, it was like a switch went off. Uh, it was just like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. I mean, why are people not investigating this? What's going on? And uh, I convinced all my friends two nights later to come out to uh, see this thing. I said, you'll never see anything like it in your life. It'll, it's just unbelievable. And I managed to drag out a whole pile of my friends. Uh, this would be two nights later. And we were looking for an airport. There was an airport where all these sightings were rumored to be happening, uh, a small air, airstrip there. And I remember sitting at the, uh, we didn't even know we were at the airstrip. We were actually at the airstrip, but it was a, a, a small local thing. So they had the, the runway lights turned off at night, so we didn't know we were standing there. And there was a whole, I can still remember there was 25 people when this thing started, when we first got there. There was people from all over the place because it was very heavily publicized. There was people uh, from all over the place just parking on back roads and trying to see if they could see this thing. And I remember when the thing finally came, there was only seven of us left. And I know my friends, we sat there for an hour, and my friend said, ah, Cameron, you're crazy. Uh, we're, we're not going to stay anymore. I said, hang on, man, if you see this, it's the most amazing thing you've ever seen in your life. And they said, nah, nah, we're, we're hungry. We're going back. I can still remember. We're going back to Winnipeg for pizza. We've had it with this. And they got in their car, and they <laughs> took off. And this was about 1230 at night. And about 20 minutes later, this uh, light flashing, bouncing around in the sky like a ping-pong ball moving around in the sky. I can still remember there was there was our car, which had about four people in it. Then there was a second car that had uh, four people in it. And uh, I can still remember it was like being at a football game where the local team is about to score. It was scoring a touchdown. The people swearing, screaming. It was just like pandemonium. And uh, I can still remember there was a girl in the car beside us. I don't know who these people were. Um, she was crying. She couldn't see it because it was bouncing around the sky. And everybody else was was yelling. There was a guy who had a, a camera with a motor drive. When motor drives came to advance film back in the 70s, I can still remember mm -hmm. this click, click, click. And as fast as he could put the film through the camera, this guy was taking pictures of this. And this girl's crying. She couldn't see it. And uh, the people in our car, they're yelling and screaming, is that what it is? And I said, well, at first, it didn't look like the same thing because it was bouncing around. But as it came towards us and it was coming right at us, it, it appeared to be the same as this first object I'd seen, very, very low to the ground, pulsing red. Uh, you couldn't really see the shape because it was so bright, but pulsing this red with a green glow on the back of it. And in fact, on my Facebook page today, uh, somebody was asking me about this, and I've actually uh, posted three photographs. Uh, and it was actually had a name. It was seen so many times in this town. It was called uh, Charlie Red Star. And these, these are three photographs that were taken by a professional photographer at the time. And uh, when I started to document the thing, I went and I tried to talk to everybody in the town who had seen this thing. Uh, I actually bought these photographs. I bought the rights to the photograph because I, I figured, like, this is going to be a, ma a major book. Everybody read about this. This is the most amazing thing. 
And uh, so I've actually put those on my Facebook site, the three photographs. And the two, it's like time time lapse or um, sort of like one second uh, photographs. So you can see this sort of a streak. In the, and the third one, the thing is actually sitting stationary in the, in the sky. Very, very clear to what we had seen. And anyway, that's that led to that. I went around. I, I did I did a lecturing around in, in the towns around there. I lectured at the high school in, in this town, and I took a poll, and 59% of the kids in the high school claimed to have seen something in the last two years that they couldn't identify. It was very, very high percentages. It was like half the town. And everybody, and at one point, I think I had about... Uh, hundreds of people on a list of people I hadn't even interviewed. Because what would happen is you'd go interview somebody and they were, well, who, how'd you find out about this? How do you know I had this sighting? And well, it really wasn't anything. And then after you talk to them for 10, 15 minutes, they'd say, well, I wasn't the only one I saw it. And then they'd give you six or seven more names of other people who had seen this thing. And you'd have this list and people I hadn't even interviewed. What happened was I, I, I had the whole thing. I did a, a manuscript with uh, the photographs, with all the interviews. And I went around and uh, to Canadian publishers here in Canada and they were sort of interested. One of them read it. Uh, they put it on their panel to re- to review, and uh, sort of not really that interested. And I, I remember I went to the big publisher in the city where I live, and figured, well, here we go, because everybody in the city knew. And it's a city of seven hundred thousand people. Everybody knew about this story. People were driving out there to see it. And I still remember the publisher, the local publisher in our city, said, "You may believe in this kind of stuff. Count me among the unbelievers." And it was at that point that I sort of went, whoa, you know, like I, I thought this was great. I mean, sightings. And it basically came down to I can tell you about my sightings. And I had a number of sightings for that, that one-year period. But people would say, uh, that's, you know, it's interesting, you know, and then go to another subject. It was like interesting, but it really didn't. Uh, it was like talking about football or something like that. So I, I became sort of disillusioned with the fact that I, I really hadn't gotten anywhere with the manuscript. And what I did at that point, there was my father flew for the Department of Transport here in Canada. I actually had a, a sighting. He was a pilot. And one of the radar techs that worked in his office had actually uh, apparently worked for the guy that ran the Canadian government UFO program. And so my father put me in contact with this guy, and the guy said, well, you know, if you really want to know what's going on with UFOs, you should study uh, Wilbur Smith. And I said, well, who's Wilbur Smith? And he said, well, he's the guy that ran the Canadian government UFO program. And when I was a young engineer, I used to work in the uh, Flying Saucer Observatory that the Canadian government had, and we used to change tapes and all this sort of stuff. And um, so I went, you what? And, and he said, oh, yeah. And Wilbur used to talk to the aliens, and he was he was crazy, but he, he had all this stuff and so I went well so I got some details and I actually went and interviewed all the what they call the what we call the inner circle the people that worked around Wilbur Smith from different agencies I recovered the Canadian government documents from from him his his wife I interviewed his wife and she basically confirmed a lot of this stuff that yes this is all for real and uh, recovered the uh, top secret memo that Stanton Friedman helped recover. This was a, uh, it's I think the only top secret document that's uh, sort of been legitimized as a UFO document. This is the the document where Wilbur Smith uh, goes to the Americans. He's uh, negotiating FM radio stations. He was a radar technician or radar engineer for the Canadian government. And when in the 1950s, when they were bringing out FM radio stations, he was negotiating with the Americans to uh, for the different uh, frequencies. And these would include frequencies that were being used by intelligence and all, all this sort of stuff. So he was in the United States quite a bit. And he had gone, because he was very interested in UFOs and what was going on, he went to the Americans, to the uh, Research and Development Board, which Vannevar Bush was associated with. And through the Canadian Embassy, he was asking questions of what was going on in the United States. 
And it was at that point that the uh, the Americans, uh, Robert Starbacher to be specific, Dr. Robert Starbacher, told him, yes, it's, uh, and he put this in the in the top secret memo, uh, UFO, uh, flying saucers, he never called them UFOs, he always called them flying saucers. Flying saucers is the most highly classified subject in the United States, rated two points higher than the hydrogen bomb. The Americans are working on it, and they have a small group that's trying to figure out what's going on, headed by Dr. Vannevar Bush. So this was the document that was recovered, and his wife told me that uh, near the end of his life, um, he he was dying. He was dying of uh, stomach cancer or lower intestinal cancer. He knew he was dying, and he told his wife, he said, uh, when I die, they're going to come looking for my files, and I want you to uh, hide the files, and I don't care who comes looking for them. You don't give the files to any government agency. And she confirmed that when Wilbur Smith died, the Americans came looking for the files for research, the Russians came looking for the files for research, and the Canadians came looking for the files for research, and she told them all, no, she destroyed the documents. Actually, the documents have been moved to a researcher, uh, Arthur Bray, who no longer researches. I think he's still alive. But he hid the files for about 20 years, and so uh, he, they then put them into an archives, and we've actually recovered all the actual documents uh, that he had, different uh, government documents, this sort of stuff. And when I, I put this out, I did the research, and that sort of impressed people a little bit more, but it still wasn't the answer. And that research led me to um, Dr. Eric Walker, who was, uh, Dr. Robert Saubacher was the American scientist who was telling the Canadians what was going on in the United States through, these, through the Canadian Embassy. And uh, Stanton Friedman had done an interview in 1983 with Robert Saubacher, and he said, uh, well, what had happened? And Robert Saubacher said, well, we, we were invited to a uh, meeting at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and this would be in the, uh, we believe it was 1950 when this meeting took place. All these different scientists were invited to uh, get briefings on what they'd been discovered from this crash. And Robert Saubacher said he'd been working on the dew line in Canada with a bunch of engineers putting up the dew line to detect uh, Russian uh, bombers coming over the pole. And he wasn't able to go. So Staten asked him, and this is an actual, we have this on audio, uh, video, uh, audio tape, he said, well, who was, who was there? Who? And he named off Vannevar Bush. He named off von Neumann. He named off Werner von Braun. He named off a number of high-ranking scientists. And Stanton said, well, wasn't there anybody who's still alive? You keep naming all these people who are dead. And he said, well, there was this one guy from Pennsylvania. And he attended all the meetings. And I remember we were at the Navy office, and we were talking about what had been discovered. These guys came back, and they were telling these stories about what they had discovered at Wright-Patterson. And he, he, he knew everything. He was at all the meetings, and he was a very arrogant guy. And due to some research by, done by uh, a researcher by the name of uh, Bill Steinman, who no longer researches, uh, we discovered this was Dr. Eric Walker, who was former president of Penn State University, the big engineering uh, Ivy League college in, in State College, Pennsylvania. And uh, we went, and I guess for about eight years, there was a, I led a team of about six researchers who went after Walker to try to get Walker to talk. And I remember the, the first conversation was with uh, Bill Steinman, who asked uh, Dr. Walker, and this was like days after the MJ-12 document was rele released at the Newfound Conference in 1987. And uh, Steinman phoned him up and he said, I've got this document called uh, the MJ-12. And uh, Walker cut him off and said, look, I've known of them for 40 years. Leave it alone. There's nothing you can do about it. Go research something else. And then for a period of eight years, Walker was the type of guy who uh, wouldn't, couldn't hang up the phone. And he would, he would talk around the subject. Uh, there was no doubt in our minds that he knew exactly what was going on. He'd been there from 1947. He'd known what was going on. He knew all the top people. He said quite clearly he knew all the top people on the MJ-12 document, but he wasn't going to talk about it. This is a subject he didn't talk about. He didn't want to talk about it. Go, unless you have the mind of Einstein, you're not going to get anywhere with this thing. Go research something, something else. 
the Walker stuff led to a book that was done by the first book that MUFON ever published. And uh, the, the book was put out, unfortunately, because the way MUFON works, you had to be a member of MUFON to buy the book. So they put out a thousand copies, they sold a thousand copies. That was the end of that story. And that didn't go anywhere. But when I, when Dr. Walker died in the 1990s, I went to Penn State University, which is one of the things I, I usually like to do. I go to different archives to try to find documents and presidential archives and people who are rumored to know what's going on. And I was at uh, Penn State University, and I was going through what would be hundreds of thousands of pages of documents that Dr. Walker had left from this 16 or 17 years as the president at Penn State University, and we were looking for a file. We knew specifically he had a file on UFOs uh, on us, on the, the stuff we were doing, and I was looking for this particular file. And um, later on, his son confirmed that he had seen a file dealing with crashes, dealing with uh, UFOs, but that when he moved the documents to Penn State University from the house, the document was missing, which would have meant that Walker, again, Walker also knew he had con congestive heart failure, knew he was dying, and had cleared out all the, the files that he didn't want anybody to find. So uh, looking for this file, I discovered that Walker had made an offer at one point to take his files uh, his research and development board files, which is the ones we were looking from, from 1950, uh, where he was in the Pentagon, in the, uh, the, the top place in the Pentagon, and um, was basically an assistant secretary of defense at that point. So we were looking for these files, which he said that he was negotiating with the Truman Library to release these files which that led me to where I am right now, to the presidential thing. I went to the Truman Library looking for the, for the Walker files, and they basically said, no, we really don't have, they got a couple of documents, but really nothing. And so I said, well, what have you got on UFOs? And they said, well, well, really nothing. And they had, you know, maybe 20 pages or 25 pages, they identify these pages, and I thought, well, this is very strange. The President of the United States is the most powerful man in the world. UFOs is considerably the, uh, considered by some the most important subject in the world, very important right. event, and so why would the most powerful man in the world not be involved with the most important subject when you look at energy and all the different spin-offs that could be involved with UFOs? And I thought this is very strange. Now, I, I left there and I went to the Eisenhower Library, which is just down the road. It's about 80 miles uh, west of the Truman Library in uh, Kansas. And I went there, and there it's very sort of, uh, you've got to have an interview, you've got to interview, and they sit, sit you down before you're allowed to research there. And the guy said, well, what are you looking for? And I basically had this thing, I want UFO files on President Eisenhower. And uh, he, he had a, done this work before I came into the interview, and he had five documents. And one was the famous CIA Robertson panel report, which had been authorized under the Truman administration, but it didn't uh, get finished until Eisenhower, so it ended up in the Eisenhower thing. So that document was there. There was one, uh, I remember a telex to the president inviting him to some UFO conference. There was basically nothing, and they had 28 million pages of files, and I'm thinking, this is really strange. And it was at that point that I figured the most important person in the world has got to know something about this, and why are there no, no UFO documents in these libraries? And I started to make this trip around the, the United States, looking at different things, trying to track the different rumored stories, because there was lots of rumored stories about various presidents being involved, and it led me from library to library, and what I did then is put it on a website where you can see the documents that I've recovered, uh, the rumored stories, and uh, we go from there. PresidentialUFO.com, am I right? Yes. And I also, so, now, I also now have... Uh, two other sites that are run that were actually run by Paul uh, Robinson, who is my webmaster. I have HillaryClintonUFO.com because Hillary Clinton was very involved, and I also have the Barack Obama UFO.com site. 
Those are great websites. And I've corresponded with Paul. He's a great webmaster. Uh, like we say on this show, I don't want to believe. I want to know. You're one okay. of the few privileged ones that actually saw a UFO more than once, which you call Charlie Red Star. Yeah. Now, from there, your curiosity went all the way to the highest figure in government, the president. Now, we're going to get into the deep analysis, and I want to give the listeners a sketch of where you're going to take us tonight. The way I want to do this, if it's okay with you, Grant, sure. would be somewhat of a chronology. Yeah. Those of you who have been to Disney World may remember the Carousel of Progress. There's going to be the Carousel of Presidents, but don't be alarmed when you see or skip President Eisenhower. We're going to leave Ike for the end, and you will know why. There's so much surfacing from this alleged meeting with extraterrestrials back in 1954. We recently had uh, Dr. Michael Sala discuss the highlights of what was supposed to be shared on Coast to Coast AM when mysteriously there was a power outage just before the show started. Now we have you, the expert on presidential UFOs research. And I hear you may be doing some research on alleged footage of the meeting. Again, we'll leave Eisenhower to the end. Grant, are you aware of any presidential UFO sightings between the Civil War and the turn of the 20th century? Civil War and the 20th century. There is a sighting, um, 1813, um, which I haven't got on my website yet, and that was under was it Jefferson. I'm not sure. 1813, July of 1813, someone writes to the president about an object in the sky, uh, fiery, it may be a fireball, but uh, it's actually in a presidential letter. Um, and I've got that. We've recovered that document. But other than that, nothing happens until the Roosevelt administration okay. in terms of presidential involvement. Let's jump to uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Of course, our listeners may be aware of the colorful, eventual, eventful life of Teddy Roosevelt. He was a cowboy, a rough rider, adventurer, naturalist, author, and president. Okay, now, there's be, no doc. Okay, we'd be going Go to Teddy. There was nothing in Teddy. There was it's uh, Franklin. Franklin. Well, actually. I do have some information I found of Teddy that oh, I want to good. share with you. Well, uh, he had a, a he had a book in 1893 that he wrote, The Wilderness Wilderness Hunter, okay. uh, and he actually wrote about Sasquatch, Bigfoot encounters, and he was really accepting to it. And supposedly there was a at least one UFO flap during his administration. So you weren't aware of that flap? I was not. Well, I was aware of the flap. I wasn't aware of the president's uh, discussion of it. I was okay. aware of the, the, the 19, or 1894 and 1895, 1896 sightings, yes. And I had always uh, been interested in anything that, that related to the president, what, what the president's involvement. But you're, so you're referring to this book, which would be fascinating if the president did actually make any comments on it. Well, there was a huge public uproar over quote-unquote flying objects that were reported from December of 1903 to September of 1908. Many of our listeners who are aeronautical buffs will recognize those days as those UFOs turned out to be two young bicycle mechanics from Ohio who repeatedly claimed to have built a heavier-than-air flying machine and to have flown it successfully. But despite scores of public demonstrations, affidavits from local dignitaries, and photographs of themselves flying, the claims of Wilbur and Orville Wright were derided and dismissed as a hoax by the Scientific American, the New York Herald, the U.S. Army, most American scientists. After all, heavier-than-air flight was deemed impossible by scientists. So there was no necessity to investigate the brothers' claims. Two years after his own conductor witnessed Orville in his spindly craft, President Theodore Roosevelt 
ordered public trials at Fort Myers in 1908 to settle the claims once and for all. The Wrights were able to prove their claim with finality, with the Army and scientific press accepting their flying machine as a reality and the rest is history. And Teddy ordered the U.S. Army's first aerodrome, an airfield or airport, be established in College Park, Maryland in 1909. I just wanted to share this with you on the audience because one could say Teddy authorized the first Project Blue Book and the first and only UFO legal case in the U.S. history. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. Now let's jump to Franklin Daniel Roosevelt, World War II. Just two months after Pearl Harbor, the incident known as the Battle of L.A. erupts during Roosevelt's term. What inside info can you reveal about the Erie incident, Grant? Okay, you're talking the, the, 50, the 42 um, incident over Battle- Los Angeles. Exactly. Battle of Los Angeles, yeah. Uh, there, there is, a, it's one of the few really documented uh, incidents where there is a presidential document involved, uh, where uh, I think it was Marshall uh, writes the president, basically um, detailing what happened in, um, in, in the night before, uh, what the military had done, and uh, the president actually responds back. Now, there are some documents that uh, Ryan Wood uh, has released, that um, are, you know, leaked documents that, that reveal later on that there, there may have been a, a crash involved. Uh, the, what's actually in the presidential library is just that one particular document that the president was aware of the fact that um, there was an object over Los Angeles and that they had uh, uh, shot off whatever, how many thousand rounds of ammunition at this thing and that there was a number of people actually killed from the ammunition coming down. So that was a, a fairly documented uh, situation where the president knew. There is the story that I'm, I'm working on right now that, that's on the Internet, but I, I've, I've found it so fascinating. This is a story about uh, his secretary of state, the longest-ranking uh, secretary of state, Cordell Hull, and the story that Cordell had uh, taken his cousin, uh, a minister from Ohio, into the sub-basement of the Capitol and showed him bodies. And uh, I've re- I've just recently talked to um, the, the the daughter, one of the daughters that uh, was told the story, and um, I'm going I'm going to I speak in Ozark in April, and I have talked to this. Uh, she's 83 years old now, and she has uh, tentatively agreed to an interview. Her and her sister, both her and her sister, were told the story by by the father, and this is the story that uh, Cordell Hall had taken the, this reverend, their father, a church reverend. Uh, into the sub-basement and showing them four bodies uh, in uh, in jars and very light metallic material. And I talked to her at length the other night about this and said, when were you told this story? And this is part that hasn't really been released yet. It, it, you'll see this story on the Internet. In fact, there's even a video of, of them talking about it. But she told me that she had been told the story in 1948, that it was that early that her father, when her first child was born, uh, the, the father, who uh, was reverend of this church, came up to her and said, uh, now that the, the new generation is here, I think there's something I better tell you, and i got to tell you what happened. And, and I asked her, I said, well, did he ever talk about it that after that? She said, no, he just wanted the one time to actually uh, say you know, that, that this was for real. And she said her and her mother would talk about it in the 50s, about this story that her father had uh, told. 
And I found it a fascinating story that you have a Secretary of State who at that time was very, very powerful. Now, uh, the Secretary of State now is powerful, but at that point, this guy was Secretary of State for, I believe, 12 or 13 years or something like that. Very long secretary, ranking Secretary of State. And the fact that uh, they may have had, and I asked her, the story's always been going around 1939. I asked her, when was the, when was he shown? And she told me, and I'll have to clarify this with her, she said 1935 is when they had these bodies under the Capitol. And that uh, research was done and uh, by the Ohio MUFON people, and that they've actually established that there was a sub-basement in, in the Capitol building in Washington. So the, there's not the direct connection yet, but there is a letter that we recovered from the uh, Roosevelt Library. Uh, Roosevelt had sent out to uh, thousands of ministers all over the United States um, to comment on, on his uh, policies. And uh, the father who that had talked about the bodies actually did write a letter. So there is actually a letter to, from him to the president in the uh, Roosevelt Library. So I, I, to me, that is one of the more fascinating, especially when you get a lady who's like 83 years old telling you this story of a story that her father told her back in 1948 about bodies. And, be, and before I started researching before the interview, I thought during that Battle of L.A. that it was going to only one object. If you, you look at the pictures, you, you discern and you see only one object. But you mentioned General George Marshall. He was actually uh, the one who investigated this, and he noted that there were 15 objects witnessed at altitudes of 9,000 to 18,000 feet, making incredible accelerations of movements. And Roosevelt later charged the Department of Defense to determine who it was that flew over the L.A., but no document report was ever found. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, very interesting. And, and the story that has always been accepted is just a totally ridiculous story that the Japanese were launching planes off their submarines, which no right. one ever explained to me how the <laughs> heck you can you can uh, get a, a plane to take off from the top of a submarine. From the water. Nonsense. And this is a, a established sort of historical counter story to this story. I mean, it's total nonsense. So uh, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating story. And people are still working on, um, we've, they actually recovered quite a few. I, on my website, I have a fairly long uh, audio uh, from radio at the very time talking about the crash, uh, the, uh, the incident from one of the radio stations at the time. And it's, it's a fairly lengthy uh, piece of uh, audio. And there are a couple of audios floating around of uh, radio broadcasts taking place at exactly that time when, when this incident occurred. Japanese USOs. Anyway, another historical note for our listeners. Uh, the U.S. Air Force becomes an independent service within the United States uh, Armed Forces. This change recognizes the fact that air power is to be the nation's first line of defense in 1947, and the skies would be increasingly crowded and now armed as well. Grant, we had the huge expansion of UFO witnesses with the vast array of military pilots in World War II with the sighting of all sides of Foo Fighters. What can you tell us about Roosevelt's administration's reactions to these anomalies and other World War II unexplainable UFOs? Um, from the actual presidential record, I have not really found anything. I mean, there are, um, there are stories that um, various people were sent over to investigate um, the, the, the uh, Swedish rockets and the uh, Foo Fighter type stuff. Uh, I have my father had a uh, his boss used to, had a Foo Fighter sighting. I have a story um, that I'm going to release um, at the Ozark conference. This is a a, um, a guy who's 85 in my city here who 
uh, was a NORAD um, Air Force officer who actually scrambled the jets. Not wasn't one of the fly or the flyers. He was the guy that did the scrambling of the jets twice. And he talks about a sighting. Uh, he had he was a prisoner of war uh, in Poland, and he talks about a sighting they had at the at the prisoner of war camp in I think it was 1943. So there was a lot of stuff going on, and we have got no really direct. There's a lot of um, stuff, and I, that's something I'm working on right now is what the State Department was doing, what the different departments are doing, and, and how it links into the president. But right now, I really don't have a direct link of, of the fact that Roosevelt knew about the Foo Fighters or that he had reacted, except from leaked documents. But in terms of the, the presidential stuff, uh, I've checked some of these documents back to the uh, Roosevelt uh, Library, and they they can't confirm any of these documents that are floating around that tell these other stories. Was the military involved in any in creating any new departments to investigate this further? Well, you have the um, the one that I'm working on is the Interplanetary Phenomena uh, Unit, and that um, I've talked to a number of people. There's varying dates as to when this. There, there's no doubt that. This department did exist. Now, whether it was created in 45 under Roosevelt or whether it was 47 under Truman, uh, we haven't been able to establish, but there is no doubt that there was a department called the Interplanetary Phenomena Unit, and uh, that's something I'm working on right now. It's a shame that UFOs hadn't been elevated to the office of Eleanor Roosevelt, who surely would have been the world's first exopolitician. And let's take a quick break, and when we come back, let's talk about President Harry Truman. This is Mel Fabregas. I'm here with Grant Cameron, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. Stay with us. Right here on the Veritas Show is supplied by the independent artists from GarageBand.com. If you hear a song you like, go over to GarageBand.com, look it up, and download it. You can even buy the group CDs, in many cases, right there at GarageBand.com. And welcome back to the Veritas Show. Let me remind you that you can download all our past shows right on our website, VeritasShow.com. We're here with our special guest, Grant Cameron. Grant, let's now discuss President Harry Truman. We're rapidly coming to the modern, fascinating events with Roswell in 1947 and the infamous flying saucer sighting 60 years ago by Kenneth Arnold flying his plane near Mount Rainier in the state of Washington, where he observed a line of strange objects, either crescent-shaped or dislike, flying with the motion of a saucer skimming on water. Is this how the term flying saucer was coined? 
If flying saucers was used until uh, 19, I believe it was 1952, UFOs was created by the U.S. Uh, Air Force. And I think that's why Wilbur Smith never used it. He knew where it had come from. And the term UFO was just to uh, muddy the waters instead of uh, having something that actually implied what was going on. Uh, UFOs, you could talk about it until the cows come home. It really doesn't mean anything. It's sort of a nebulous term that, uh, that I think was created to divert everybody away from what's actually going on. So, um, yeah, uh, back in 47, you had all the, the, the different uh, sightings, and this is where you sort of get um, the president actually getting questioned. And one of the things that people really don't know is that the president of the United States, uh, as, as much as we may think this is an important subject, has only really faced the UFO question on two occasions in a press conference. Uh, and one of the incidents was a couple days after the Roswell uh, announcement when the uh, Army Air Force announced that they had recovered a, a flying disc. Flying disc. Mm -hmm. uh, Roosevelt was asked the question in a news conference. Unfortunately, he was asked the wrong question. He was asked about what do you think about uh, the reports of, of, of flying saucers on the front pages of newspapers, something to that effect. And he said, all I know is what uh, I've read in the newspapers. And he was able to, and there was no follow-up question, and uh, it went away. And, and the next time a president was asked was in 1954. Uh, Eisenhower was asked about UFOs in terms of a flap of UFO sightings in Europe, and someone asked him, and the president was able to evade the question by saying, uh, "I have uh, a close, I have some friends in the Air Force, and they have advised me that there's nothing true to." Uh, to all these reports or something to that effect. So he was, but since 1954, uh, the president has not really faced in any news conference a UFO question since then. So it's not so really a subject. Yeah. How do you ask a president? You have to ask the right question. In other words, you have to ask him or her, have you ever been briefed? Briefed. Brief. That's the, that's the, the critical thing because, like, for example, Jimmy Carter if it has been on the record for 40 years that he had the UFO sighting. And uh, he'll talk about the UFO sighting as much as you want. He has no reservations about talking about UFO sighting. And he's even now talks about the fact that he doesn't really believe that uh, Martians can come here from, uh, from outer space and is playing the skeptic and this sort of stuff. The, the key is um, you don't care what a president thinks about UFOs. You don't care about whether he's had a UFO sighting, whether Reagan had a sighting or whatever. All you want to know, and, and that's my quest, is what is the truth? And the truth of UFOs will be presented in a presidential briefing. That will be the 15 or 16 intelligence agencies all putting their material together. The president asks for a briefing. I want a briefing on UFOs. I want to know what's going on. The, the agencies put together a briefing. Somebody walks into his office says, Mr. President, Here's what we know about UFOs, and there's no more disinformation, no more garbage, you hope, and he basically reads him uh, the, the, the briefing, and this is what we know. And that's, uh, I got lucky with Dick Cheney, people may know the story, uh, Dick Cheney sure. was, was always rumored to have known about UFOs, have, have been inside the inner circle uh, with the uh, military industrial complex, and uh, when George Bush was campaigning, uh, he was contacted by uh, Charles Huffer in Arkansas, and Charles Huffer uh, um, got him going into a lecture and said to uh, Bush, he said, you know, if you're president, are you going to release uh, what we know about the UFOs? Are you finally going to tell us what's going on? And he said, yeah, I will, and he went into the thing. 
into the the meeting. He came back out. Charles Huffer was still standing in the hallway, and uh, President Bush I, identified him, and he was uh, Dick Cheney was right beside him. And as he was coming down the hallway, he recognized Charles Huffer, and he said to him, without Charles Huffer ever asking the question again, he said, "We're going to get on that." He said, "This Mr. Cheney, he was Secretary of Defense. He'll know. It'll be the first thing he does when he gets in the White House. We're going to get you the answer, or something to that effect." So they were basically on the record. Uh, that they were going to disclose, George Bush in, in 2000. And then what happened was you had incidents like um, a friend of mine... September uh, the 11th, right. Uh, yeah, you had, well, you had, first of all, you had um, um, Laura Johnstone. I don't know if people know Laura, about, the story about Laura Johnstone. She was a, a radical uh, in California. She had protested, been arrested out at the White House numerous times, had heard the Charles Huffer story and decided, uh, why, do, why doesn't he release? So she went on a hunger strike, which lasted for 42 days. She went on a hunger strike, and she actually got a comment from the vice president's office, uh, th- a no comment, that they wouldn't comment about it. But she had, she had a, a, a senator behind her. She uh, created a lot of stir, was interviewed all over the United States about the fact that she was going to be on a hunger strike until the president released what was going on. He had promised Charles Huffer the, uh, the UFO answers, and she was going to, if it cost her her life, she was going to do it. W- where it fell apart was that the UFO community basically chastised her. Even Charles Huffer was trying to get her to come off the, uh, the, uh, the hunger strike. strike. And uh, in the end, when I went to California to uh, talk to her, just two days after she ended the hunger strike, I said, Laura, why did you do it? She said, well, uh, basically, uh, the UFO community, if they don't give a damn, why should I kill myself? And she had been really ridiculed by the UFO community, and there, there was the UFO community was support, divided then and now. So when I had the chance, I heard that uh, Dick Cheney was going to be on a radio talk show. This is about three months after um, the... Um, they were elected. This was in April of 2001. Uh, I heard he was going to be on the Diana Reem show. I had figured out how to get on the show, how to get your question on there. And so I phoned up, and uh, I was the first caller up, and I said, I asked them the briefing question. And I said, Mr. Cheney, in all your jobs in government, have you ever been briefed on the subject of UFOs? And if so, when was it, and what were you told? And that's basically what you want. You want to know when was it so you can file freedom of information. If you know what the date is, you right. know where that briefing took place, you can, you can force the briefing out. And he, I guess he was taken off guard by the question, and he said, if I had been briefed on that subject, it would probably be classified, and I wouldn't be talking about it. And then Diana right. Reem came in, and by then he was sort of catching his, his footing, and she said, Mr. Vice President, have you had any meetings on UFOs since you got to the White House? And he said, no, there's been no u- meetings on UFOs since I became the Vice President, which was probably true, because it was only a couple months after. And so that was the whole thing. It was the, it was the briefing question. It was trying to get uh, the president. Now, I had Jimmy Carter on, a, on the, exactly the same radio talk show, and it, I, he, Carter had been asked numbers of times about the sighting, and he would talk about the sighting, and I wanted to know, because there's always the rumored stories that Carter had been briefed. So what I wanted to know is, Mr. Carter, have you ever been briefed on the subject? If so, when was it, and what were you told? It came on, he was talking about the Civil War. He'd written a book about the Civil War. I came on, I told the producer I made the mistake, and, and I always told people, I'll tell the truth when I come on. I'm not going to try to scam my way through the thing. I told the, the producer what my question was. So she said, okay, fine, hang on. I was, again, first caller. I was on the line. I could hear the conversation going on. And about a minute and a half later, the producer came back on and said, I'm sorry, you're not on the topic. We're going to have to cancel your question. Click, and they cut me off. So I had a chance to ask Carter, and that would have established, and I'm still working on it. And I always tell people, if you do happen to get one of these people, 
that's the question you have to ask. If you get a, a vice president or um, even, for example, uh, David Rudiak, who's a fantastic researcher who's helped me out numerous times, knew this whole thing. And what had happened during the 2008 campaign is uh, General Wesley Clark had been running around. He was at one point leading the Democrats for uh, the, the, um, the 2004 election. And he was in New Hampshire, and he made a statement. He started talking about the fact that he wanted to be an astronaut. And I always wanted to be an astronaut, and uh, his eyesight was no good, so he, he wasn't able to, and he went into the Army, became a four-star general in the Army. So he said, I, I've always thought about uh, we could go past the speed of light, and I've always believed we could do it. And um, I, I've argued with physicists about it. And he makes this statement that uh, just wild. Where does he get this? Four-star general talking about us going past the speed of light. So I put out a, an alert to all sorts of researchers all over the United States. And I said, Clark, and, and well, first of all, I put this thing out. And then I, uh, one of the Avery, I don't know if people, your guests know who the Avery is. There's a bunch of these people who have at some point in their life been involved in the UFO subject. And they really don't know what's going on anymore in you and I, but they've had some involvement and they sort of work together. There's uh, different people like Pendolfi and uh, Putoff and uh, uh, different people like that who sort of correspond with each other and talk to each other and they're all trying to figure it out themselves and they're at a little bit higher level than you and I and they were, they were given the, the term the Avery by Bill Moore so I put, the, put it out to some of these and, and one of the people associated with them came back and said a bird referring to the Avery one of the birds has told me that Wesley Clark has been briefed on crash flying saucers so then the alert was out I told all state directors and I had, we had his campaign we knew where he was going from state to state and we actually had him in Iowa. We had him. We were going to ask him the briefing question. And what happened was at the last minute, the person who was going to ask the question said, I don't want to embarrass the guy. And I, I came back and said, and this happened a number of different occasions with researchers, said, I don't want to ask the question because I don't want to embarrass him. And I said, well, if we're afraid of asking the UFO question, why would you expect the media to have to ask it for us? This is right. our job to force the issue out and to get them on the record. Mean- okay. I don't mean to interrupt you here, but I just want to pull back for a moment and go back to Truman, and then we can go okay. back to uh, the Clinton years and and uh, uh, Wesley Clark's. Okay. Because let me, let me just say something quickly. I totally agree. I think we call it, what, the kiss of death? Uh, by the way, that interview with Cheney, we have it preceding the interview, the, our interview here. So those who haven't heard, they're going to listen to you uh, talking directly to uh, Vice President uh, Dick Cheney. But anyway, I call it the kiss of death. John Podesta, who's also on our intro, talked a lot during uh, the Disclosure Project 2002, and then during the Obama presidential campaign, he remained silent. Why? Because it's a case of death. We can all remember what happened to Dennis Kucinich when he said that he saw a UFO. Everybody ridiculed him. Even the late Tim Russert ridiculed him on TV. And that's, in my opinion, what happens when the subject comes along. Do you agree? It's exactly what the situation is, that... um I studied uh, Kucinich at length after he talked about the fact that he had this sighting. And his sighting was not a sighting. His sighting was a close encounter. He was like yards right. away from this thing. They drew diagrams, all this sort of stuff. And there was a, probably 100, 150 articles on Kucinich after that. And not one of them made a positive reference to his UFO. They called him the nut, all this sort of stuff. And he basically uh, backed off. 
even though he had a, a very dramatic sighting and uh, basically then started to play the skeptics. The same as, as John Podesta has now, uh, we've got, I've got people close to Podesta that we've talked to and it's not going to happen. Uh, the John Podesta is not going to disclose and uh, Obama's not going to disclose. But anyway, you want to go back to the Truman years. Yep. Let's go back to uh, Truman back in, uh, by the way, I don't know if you've seen a video that's out there uh, where actually President uh, Truman admits UFOs are real and the video's dated July 20th, 1952. You've seen that, right? Where he says it's real. I have a video where he talks about it's important and we've talked to the Joint Chiefs of Staff about it and they we talked to the Joint Chiefs of Staff numerous times about it and it's it's important or something like that. I've never heard him say um yeah i i'm I'm not sure what the wording that's that to me is always the critical thing whether they're saying uh it's important or whether they're saying uh they exist or whether they're just saying yeah there are a lot of uFO reports is is to me it's very specific what the president is actually saying because it means so much as to how he words it well back in the Late 40s, early 50s, the world had spent an exhausted war period looking at the skies for bombers and beam plane spotters, so we had millions of eyes turned skyward 24-7. Probably more attention of the skies since the first shepherds slept on the first grassy knolls. We've got the Truman years, who we have confirmed quotes where he remarks about high-level briefings on national security concerning flying saucers. Truman overtly appoints his personal pilot, Colonel Landry, as his personal liaison with the CIA and UFO, and gets oral briefings in the Oval Office. What can you tell us about those briefings or discoveries? Uh, this is his general was brought in in uh, 1948, and uh, there was to be, I think, four briefings a year, and uh, so we I estimated there was about 16 briefings that took place. Uh, his um, his general there was actually two references. These are coming out of oral histories at the Truman Library. And his general actually talks about the fact that uh, he was involved in the Foo Fighters. And he called them Mulligatons or something. He had a name for them. And he said that uh, he was with the 8th Air Force in Hawaii and that he was involved with radar and that they had seen these uh, mysterious objects on radar uh, a number of times during the Second World War. And uh, so he, he got the briefings to, um, to Truman. But again, it was uh, nothing confirmed that he was able to confirm crashes or anything like that. It's just basically one oral history where he talks about the fact that the president uh, was very interested in the whole phenomena. And th that's the kind of stuff I look for. There are a couple of incidents where you know the president is extremely interested. He's sitting from the sidelines. And one is, is Ruppelt, who, who writes the book uh, the, on, the, uh, on the Blue Book. And he talks about in 1952, the sighting, that uh, he was uh, briefing, um, uh, he, he asked for a briefing from Wright Pat, and that the president was on the other phone line. And the other thing that we had, and this came up just recently, and I, I, I consider it extremely important evidence, um, the, the, the uh, latest Roswell book that was written by Kerry and Schmidt, uh, they made a number of references over the years to the fact that um, there was a couple of Roswell witnesses who were sworn to secrecy by the president. One guy's name was Easley, who was the, the uh, sort of in charge of security at the, at the crash site. And uh, so, of course, I can go back into presidential records and I can look at uh, any contacts. For example, if you've been talked to the president by phone, if you've corresponded with the president by letter, or if you've had a meeting with the president. This is all recorded very specifically, and you can basically track that kind of stuff. And none of these witnesses were coming up as having had any involvement with the president. So I went to um, um, Kerry and I said to him, 
I, I, this doesn't make sense. These people are saying they were sworn to secrecy by the president, not to talk about the crash at Roswald, and I can't track anything. Uh, who are they? Where did they get in contact with the president? He said, no, it was a Secret Service agent. The president had sent a Secret Service agent to Roswald to swear these people to secrecy. And I said, well, what was the Secret Service agent's name? He gave me two names, and the one guy's name was Gerald McCann, spelt with two N's, very weird spelling. So I went back and checked the record. Sure enough, President Truman had a Secret Service agent by the name of Gerald McCann, and it links up exactly with these people, and they would not have had access to these presidential records, which means that the President of the United States, because uh, what we did during the Roswell crash is you track President's movements. You can track his daily calendar, where he is, and this sort of stuff, and there was nothing that really linked up him to the crash, that he was talking to certain people. There were a lot of his generals, uh, Vandenberg and people like this, there was these meetings going on that David Rudiak, the researcher, has detailed very carefully uh, that showed that his generals were very active in Washington around the Roswell crash, having these these important meetings. LeMay was involved, uh, Vandenberg, all these these guys and it appeared that they were they were dealing with the thing but there was no real direct link to the president but this was a direct link that that you had the secret service agent from the president in roswald swearing roswald witnesses to secrecy on behalf of the president of the united states so i i found that very significant especially coming I mean, maybe 60 years after the event grant why can you tell us about a supposed project gleam set up in 1947 the project contained volumes of documents documented information collected from the beginning of the military investigation of UFOs on identified alien craft. It was originally established by President Truman and then by order of President Eisenhower on the control of the National Security Council. Did the president establish MJ-12, Majestic or Majority 12, to handle this project in your opinion? Well, that's the thing. I have no direct evidence. I, I'm not even, even familiar with this project very much. I have no direct evidence except through leaked documents, which um, really don't um, get us anywhere, unless you can confirm it inside the presidential library or with a witness um, around the president who will describe this. The MJ-12 thing, we did a lot of work on. And the most um, concrete material I had on the MJ-12 was when it first came out was the fact that Walker, Dr. Eric Walker, who was uh, Vandivar Bush, was in the MJ-12 document, is sort of described in, and by Wilbur Smith as, as the guy who was running the program. And to show you how powerful Vandivar Bush was, when uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Vandivar Bush left the Pentagon in 1950, Eric Walker got his office. So Walker was a very powerful guy, and when Walker, a couple days after the MJ-12 document is released, he has no, no knowledge that this document's been released, and says, as soon as he hears the word MJ-12, says, I've known of them, this, is, this interview was done in 1987, He's, and he said, I've known of them for 40 years. So you take out 40 years, that's 1947. I've known of them for 40 years. Leave it alone, there's nothing you can do about it. And so he's confirmed it. And the other thing that we had, and we put in the book, and, and it was strange, because we put it in the book and he said, oh, let's just see how many people flood us with questions as to who this is. We put in the book that we had a, a, this T. Scott Crane had written the book with me. And T. Scott Crane had a relative who was a, um, a person who was declassifying documents at Okinawa at a general's office in Japan. And she had reported that she was part of a, a four-person declassification team in the general's office. They were declassifying documents in the filing cabinet, and they found this document in behind the drawer of the filing cabinet. And she said to us, 
it was either the MJ-12 document or it was something very close. It, it, she really couldn't tell the difference. It was basically an MJ-12 document. And we put this in the book, and nobody contacted us. Nobody questioned it. The only thing that, that happened was she phoned us up absolutely furious. She had been uh, reprimanded. She had been moved to uh, the, the United, another part of the United States. was absolutely furious at, at the fact that we had... Uh, we had given her away, and we didn't mention who it was, but I guess you can put two and two together and figure out... They figured it out. Figured it out. So um, that's the kind of thing that that we're able to sort of track, that the MJ-12, I think uh, there was a MJ-12. Now, the documents, I think, could be forged. They could be documents that were taken and just changed, because then you can you can put the information out. This is what I think they're doing, whether it's the, the documents that Ryan Wood is getting or whether it's the MJ-12 document. Uh, what it is, you release the document, you change it a little bit, so you, if you get asked, you can say it's a hoax. Well, yeah, it's a hoax. But you're getting the information, the idea of MJ-12, they want it out. And so they release this, this material, and what happens is uh, people get burned. That's the other thing, is that uh, these cases are come to set up researchers. And the one that they wanted to burn in, in the MJ-12 document was Bill Moore. And Bill Moore was very popular. People don't... I was knew Bill Moore very well at the time. And what happened was Bill Moore had written the, the original Roswell book. And this came out in uh, 1979. And he said this... This incident where people contacting him about MJ-12 came while he was on the publicity tour for the book. And what had happened was the book was so well written, and it sort of documented the Roswell crash that it was it was a bestseller. People were starting, to, the media was starting to look at it as if this this could be legitimate. This guy's actually got witnesses that talk about the crash and all this sort of stuff. And what you have to do is you have to uh, distort the story that Bill Moore is telling about Roswell. So what you do is you you flood it with phony documents, and you also have to burn Bill Moore with the document that he's going to put the document out. And Bill Moore held it as long as possible, the MJ-12 document, so it wouldn't come out so that he could research it. He and Stanton Friedman and Chandra were researching the document. But then what happened was they leaked the document to Tim Good in Britain, and he was putting it in a book, which forced them to bring the document out before they were ready to bring the document out. And Bill Moore ended up losing his career. He basically was so ridiculed over what happened with the MJ-12 document. He basically said, I've, I've had it with this. I tried to interview him at one time. He says, look, Grant, we've been friends for years. But I'll tell you, you're never going to get to the bottom of this thing. This thing is so deep, you're never going to get to the bottom of it. And I, I'll turn down the interview because I wanted to see what his reaction was after many years. So MJ-12, I believe, did exist. But there's such a flood of, of uh, uh, documents that they have flooded the UFO community with that you really can't tell what's going on except to confirm that MJ-12 existed. It's like the National Enquirer. Some people say that it's a front for the CIA. You see science fiction, you see uh, hoaxes, but every so often you may find a piece of news that everybody omits that may be the truth. Yeah. Uh, one thing we were told, uh, we and this was a contact that came out of Canada. It was kind of an interesting story. There was one guy, and we were going to interview him, but we never got to interview him. He was a Canadian intelligence guy. And um, his claim was that the MJ-12 was a... Um, was a, a, a test for young intelligence officers to run a, a disinformation thing. And this was right, sort right. of a, a test. So there was these, these things floating around. But when you get um, Walker's statement and you get this woman that was at this, uh, this um, um, uh, Air Force base in Okinawa 
um, I think, to me, it, it confirmed the fact that it was going on and that um, the details are so far beyond uh, the government. And that, I guess that's sort of what I'm working on now, what I'm going to lecture at, at Ozark, is that the government that you're talking about, whether you're talking about Truman or whether you're talking about Obama or Clinton or whatever, you're talking about people refer to the government covering up. And I sort of am now in the position where John Alexander is, is, is maintaining, and I, I agree with him, the elected government, not the, the uh, cabal or whatever, the elected government really doesn't know what's going on and really don't care because uh, this thing, whoever controls this thing, is outside the government. So there's always this confusion. People say the government is covering up. The government doesn't know what's going on. It's somebody inside the government. And Bill Clinton was asked about uh, this whole incident by Sarah McClendon. She right. said, Mr. Mr. President, why don't you do what these people are? Because at that time, Stephen Greer was putting a lot of pressure on Congress and the, and the government to, with, the, with the disclosure project. Why don't you do what these people are asking? Why don't you rele- release the UFO stuff? And he leaned over and he said, Sarah, there's a government inside the government, and I don't control it. And, control and, and when a president it. says that, that's an important something to keep in mind. So there's there's obviously a few levels of government, but one government that we call it our government, Republicans versus Democrats, I call it the illusionary government. We believe that we go to the polls, and I shouldn't be saying this on the show, this is for another subject. We believe we go out to the polls and, and choose our president, but you know exactly where I'm coming from. And then you have the second level, which is the one that's actually pulling the strings. Yeah, exactly. And that's an important point that people have to realize, is that when they're, like for example, there's this big thing about Obama releasing and you you got to see first of all he's got to get control of it and uh bill clinton stated bill clinton has been more open than any other president on this thing in fact the the one the other statement that i think people have ignored that bill clinton made was the 2005 statement that he made in hong kong this was an answer to a question that had nothing to do with ufo's and they asked the mr president uh when a president leaves and goes and, and the next president takes over, is there secrets that you pass from one president to another? Like example, where is Jimmy Hoffa's body buried? Right. And Clinton starts in about UFOs. And he said, I'm probably not the first president they lied to or that the bureaucrats tried to wait out. I tried to get to the bottom of this thing and I'm embarrassed to tell you I was not able to get anything. And he basically states, categorically, I tried to get the answer to the UFO subject. I couldn't get anything. And I don't think he's lying. I think that he's, he's on the level that he's trying to send this message that the government really doesn't control this issue. And that's what John Alexander is running around now saying. He said it at the X conference last year, and he said it at the Cross Saucer conference. John Alexander is an insider for 50 years, and he contacted me a number of times when I was putting out the Clinton thing, and he's always been seen like the black guy in ufology, and, and you know, he's a disinformation guy. But what he says rings true in terms of all the research I've done at presidential libraries, and what he says, to, to sum up what he says, is to say there are people inside the government who are interested, Bill Clinton, John Podesta, all these different people, but there is no institutional support for UFOs. The government itself is really not doing anything anything on UFOs. There really is not a movement inside Congress or the House of Representatives or inside the executive branch to push UFOs. There are people who are interested, but nobody is going to step up and try to push the issue. So you've got to distinguish between people inside the government like Bill Clinton, who are interested in the subject, and the government being interested. The government doesn't know, and that's what John Alexander says, and I think he may be right, the government doesn't know and they don't care. Now, we're going to talk about Clinton and Hubble and all those others uh, when we get uh, to Clinton. But let's jump from Truman 
to Kennedy. And those of you who have just joined us, don't, don't be alarmed. We're going to be talking about Eisenhower at the end of the presidential carousel, as we call it. Let's go to Kennedy from 61 to 63. Grant, you have noted the rumor that in 1963, while boating off Cape Cod, a silver object 60 feet across came down and was witnessed by JFK. He chose not to disclose the incident. Have you learned anything more about that incident or how it may have affected JFK's views or what was, who was present at that event? Um, that was a story that was put out by Michael Wolff. And uh, I've worked on Michael Wolf. Michael Wolf claimed to be a, um, a guy who actually was briefing um, President Clinton, that he was providing material for President Clinton. And um, I have not been able to confirm the thing. I've gone to the Clinton people and tried to get um, confirmation as to contacts and stuff with the president. I'm not able to uh, confirm. The, the, the story with the, with the boat with um, Kennedy is just that. It's a story that we really can't confirm or deny. Um, the Kennedy administration, people have to remember, there's a lot of leaked documents, and, and a lot of these leaked documents bring in Marilyn Monroe and that whole incident. But I think what people have to remember is that the the um, um, Kennedy administration was a very short administration. It didn't even get, make it through the first right. term before he was assassinated. And in this kind of issue that you need a long time to get control of it, to get, um, get grips of it, and then push it out. Um, there is a... Um, on on the um, at the Truman uh, not the uh, at the Kennedy Library, there's actually statements that Kennedy really wasn't interested, in. and this, he says it in his own words. He's not interested in space at all. So the the question of whether he was really involved, I, I know a lot of people say that that he was there and that was why he was killed. I sort of think my impression, if I were to say, is that Kennedy really didn't have much to do with UFOs at all. That he really may have had a uh, circumstantial interest, for example, Robert Kennedy was very interested in UFOs, and there are a lot of documents we've recovered, him writing to people and saying he's a skeptic, but he's interested in, in the phenomena. He's, he's, he watches what goes on, he reads about it, this sort of stuff, but Kennedy was very short, and if you take a look at Edgar Mitchell, and I talked to Edgar Mitchell, and this is, again, something like John Alexander, Mitchell started to change me when I used to think, you know, you have all these presidential briefing stories that they all know about it and this sort of stuff, which is what Robert Collins, who was the, the Condor, Robert Collins, the Avery, he claims that every president is briefed, has given the information. And so Edgar Mitchell said to me, uh, the information that he's got from his sources, and his sources are pretty good, high-ranking sources, is that no president since Kennedy has been told the truth. And so that started to change me as to whether some of these people really knew what was going on or whether they just had uh, circumstantial interest in the phenomena. But you have discussed previously that Attorney General Bobby Kennedy is documented to have shared UFO notes and inquiries with uh, then-Congressman Gerald Ford, who had such a keen interest in UFOs. Do you think, as some have speculated, that not only did the military-industrial complex fear JFK's disillusionment with the war, the Vietnam War, and the CIA's growing power, but also his potential desire to share UFO info with the Russians to avoid an inadvertent Cold War event and even potentially a nuclear incident triggered by a UFO misidentification or overreaction? And perhaps that's why he was killed? Well, I mean, the, mil the military, whether he knew about UFOs is, is one thing that, that I can really comment on. And that is, Stephen Greer talks about this, that he, he claims, his sources tell him 
that when a president comes in, they do a psychological profile of the president as whether he can keep his mouth shut or whether you can trust the guy. And there's always been this story that the Democrats aren't told what's going on and the Republicans are told what's going on because the Republicans have a tie-in with the with the military. And I think right. that may have been Kennedy's situation where the military really didn't trust the guy. And uh, so they're really not going to tell him anything significant about any, uh, uh, the UFO situation because you, you, the presidents come and go. That's one of the problems they have is why tell the guy if he's only going to be there for four years or eight years. Uh, but uh, uh, Clinton, I know for a fact, and Carter for a fact, because I was in the libraries and I've done a lot of background research, uh, they would have nothing to do with these people. I mean, everybody inside Washington uh, really didn't trust them. Uh, Jimmy Carter, they were described as Jimmy Carter was uh, this guy from uh, Georgia. Uh, the Washington insiders, you run against the Washington insiders, and Kennedy might have done the same thing. You run against the Washington insiders, uh, and then you get to Washington. Don't be surprised if the Washington insiders who control the money, the power, and the knowledge don't tell you anything because you ran against them. The same as, as uh, Bill Clinton came from, Ar- came from uh, Little Rock, Arkansas with all his uh, people who, with the accents and stuff like this. And he went into the first thing he wanted to do, uh, which is documented, was bring gays into the military. And he had an insurrection inside the Joint Chiefs of Staff that they, they were basically ready to, uh, you know, uh, revolt because of this fact that he wanted gays in the military. So you, you get this situation where the military suddenly doesn't trust you and then you get cut out, and it doesn't matter what you what, what your position is, you're a guy that's not trusted. And that's something that Stephen Greer puts out, which seems to fit, whether it's Kennedy, whether it's Carter, or whether it's uh, Clinton, that Democrats are really, like, for example, uh, Clinton was rumored to be a, a draft dodger. who went to England to avoid the Vietnam War. And so that kind of stuff, you can't trust them. And uh, the UFO thing, the secret is something that, that comes at a level where you really have to trust the guy. And the same thing would come with Obama. Can you really trust Obama? Do, will the military actually, or whoever controls that secret, trust Obama enough to give him the knowledge that he needs to bring disclosure about? So before we take another break, so you don't think it's plausible that Kennedy wanted to... Uh tell the Russians so they could work together because of the possibility of an attack between each other just because they saw a UFO thinking it was a missile and an attack is deployed. Isn't what a reason why maybe the 30-minute early warning system was created in order to prevent that from happening? Yeah, that and the, uh, the phone. I mean, a lot of that stuff was in there. Uh, but if you're the military, you can leak that kind of stuff without getting involved in UFOs, that we need a system uh, to identify... Uh, launches you can phrase it in a different way without having to say uh you know aliens ufos all this kind of stuff to set it up that uh, i think it would be behind the scenes that that kennedy would go along with it but maybe didn't even realize that there was this problem of of misidentified missiles but if you you can phrase it that way in a briefing and he's not going to know what you're really trying to what you're really trying to identify and cover up because the the red phone was the other thing was the the fact that you could you you could uh, block this kind of uh, uh, thing where if there was a UFO identified, you could actually talk back and forth. And I can't remember now. We we did a lot of research on the on the red phone. There was a story I can't remember what it was, but there was a UFO related story uh, detailing that. Uh, it may have been the um, the Kecksburg thing where there was a phone call came out of um, uh, during the Kecksburg crash. There was in the 
Kecksburg UFO record, uh, the Blue Book record, there was a phone call coming from, um, uh, it's a, it's a, they used a code name for it. And when you track the code name for it, it's the bunker where the president is taken at Mount Weather outside of Washington the nuclear bunker, and there was a phone call coming out of there about uh, the Kecksburg crash, during the Kecksburg crash, that this is all, it's all sort of linked together, and uh, when I talked to uh, that attorney who claimed to work for um, Eisenhower, um, oh, I can't remember his name, he, he was there, he was working uh, with the president at the bunker, and he stated that uh, the, the, the bunker was being used uh, to track UFOs. This is where all the actual UFO tracking that was being done by the White House was going through the through the bunker. Now, let's take another break, but before, we're going to talk about, when we come back, of all the presidents, no president had a longer and more sustained interest in space than this next president we're going to be talking about. We're here with Grant Cameron, Presidential UFOs. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. Head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, click on subscribe, and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We'll take a short break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more. 